Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, if we haven't met yet, my name is Aaron, and I'm one of the uh, pastors at uh, Exilic. And if you're joining us for the first time today, uh, we're doing a sermon series on uh, the most famous prayer ever uttered. And it is a prayer that has been uttered from churches all the way to football locker rooms, and that is the Lord's Prayer. Now, why are we devoting this entire summer to the Lord's Prayer? Well, prayer in many ways is like texting. Texting is one of the primary ways that we communicate today, and similarly, prayer is the primary way that we communicate with God. And in order to have a healthy relationship with anyone, you need to have healthy lines of communication with them. And so prayer is one of the reasons, uh, one of the ways that we maintain a healthy relationship with God. Now, I am keenly aware that whenever a pastor does a sermon on prayer, that they are fighting an uphill Sisyphusian battle. And I know that because I have a severe allergy to prayer. Prayer is not something that I am a master of, but something that I am a student of in need of tremendous tutelage. And yet, if we want to have a healthy relationship with God, we have to have a robust prayer life. This is why in Luke chapter 11, which is the only other place where the Lord's Prayer appears, one of the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray, or how should we pray? And Jesus responded, response is the Lord's Prayer. And so every week this summer, we're taking a look at one phrase of the Lord's Prayer. And today we are taking a look at perhaps the scariest, yet the safest line in the Lord's Prayer, and that is, your will be done. Now, what is God's will? A question that people have pondered for centuries. What is God's will? Now, theologians talk about God's will in a variety of different ways, but for our purposes here today, I just want to talk about God's will in two ways, his revealed will and his concealed will. God's revealed will is that which is open, plain, and obvious. For example, love God, love other people, be humble, be generous, honor your father and mother, be a good worker. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, this is God's will for your life that you give thanks in every single circumstance. And so this is God's revealed will to us. Now when we typically think about what is God's will for my life, what we're really thinking about is not God's revealed will. What we're really thinking about is his concealed will. And something that's concealed is that which is hidden, not open, not obvious, kind of a secret. And what we're thinking about is our future and the unknown future. And so, is this a year that I can finally cancel my dating apps and will I finally meet the right person? 
is this the year that I pivot my careers and do that thing that I've been so scared to do? Is this the year that we, have, we finally have children? Is this the year that I stay in the city or move out of the city? This is God's concealed will. And typically when we compare the revealed will of God and the concealed will of God, when we hear the revealed will of God, it almost sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. It's like wah, 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 wah. What we really care about is the future and the unknown future. Yeah, take a look with me at Deuteronomy 29, 29, and, and let's see what it says together. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. Notice in Deuteronomy 29, 29, what belongs to whom? Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to God. The revealed things belong to us. Now, I remember the very first time, it was almost like a JFK moment for me because I was in seminary hearing this for the first time, and I thought to myself, oh, why is it that the secret things belong to him? Why are we kept in the dark? Just give us a little peek into what the future holds. Why, why, do, why just the revealed things? Why not, uh, additionally, the concealed things? And I think a part of the reason why is because when we do have a glimpse into our future, there is a sense in which looking into the future can paralyze us in the present. If you've ever seen any movie about time travel where someone gets a glimpse into the future, does that character return to the present more free and liberated? That never happens. Whenever they get a glimpse into the future, they're more burdened. And so oftentimes we don't know what we're asking for when we're asking for God's will to see the concealed things or the unknown things uh, that are ahead. So here's the question. What should our posture be in regards to our unknown future? Well, when we take a look at the Lord's Prayer, our posture towards our unknown future can be one of two things. Either we can say, my will be done, or we can say your will be done. Now what's the difference between the two? When we say my will be done, we're saying one of two things. Number one, I'm in control over my life and my destiny, and I'm going to determine what the future holds. Or number two, when we say my will be done, what we're really saying is I'm going to do whatever makes me the happiest. And what I would like to do as we take a look at these two approaches is I would like to poke a few holes with this type of mindset to see that our better way of saying, uh, our better way of approaching life is by saying your will be done, okay? So the first one, I'm in control over my own life and my destiny. And I think a, a good way of summarizing this mindset is um, the movie Back to the Future. And I just recently asked a college grad whether they had seen it and they had, so I'm assuming all of you have seen it. Uh, but in the movie, Doc uh, says to Marty, Marty McFly, he says, Marty, your future is what you make it, so make it a good one. Now, to a certain degree, that's true, isn't it? Our decisions, our choices matter, and they determine our future. On the other hand, there is a part of this, uh, there is a part of that where it doesn't really matter what your choices are or decisions are. And I'll give you some, uh, some examples. Were you in control did you have any say-so over what generation or what year you would be born in? No, you didn't. 
Did you have any control over what country you would be born in? No, you didn't. Did you have any decision about what your ethnicity would be? No, you didn't. Did you have any control over who your parents would be? No, you didn't. Did you have any control over what your gender would be? No, you didn't. And so a large part of the construction of your identity, you had no control over whatsoever. Furthermore, although the message that you're in control over your own life and destiny sounds very empowering to those that are very smart, sophisticated, and savvy and know how to navigate through this world, even for the smart and the savvy, sometimes things are out of your control. Sometimes things are out of your power. Sometimes you are helpless with certain situations. And suffering in particular has a habit of knocking us off our pedestal, reminding us that we're not as powerful as we think. You're not as in control of life as you think you are. So those are a few holes. Um, so what should our approach be? I think a good way of approaching this is on the first page of your bulletin uh, from a missionary to India named Stanley Jones, if I can read this to us. And Jones says, prayer is surrender, surrender to the will of God in cooperation with that will. If I throw out a boat hook from the boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to the will of God. I think a better way of approaching our unknown future is basically saying, whatever you send into my life, whatever it is, even if I don't like it, I'm okay with it because I know that you're in control of all things. John Newton, who wrote the most famous hymn ever, Amazing Grace, he once said, what you will, when you will, how you will. Whatever you send into my life, whenever you send it into my life, however you send it into my life, I'm going to accept it, even if I don't like it, but here's what I'm not gonna do. I'm not gonna ghost on you. I'm not gonna disappear on you. I'm not gonna quit on you, but I'm gonna trust you because you're in control. Much better way of approaching the unknown future. But here's, a, here's another uh, way that we often approach my will be done, and it's not just being in control of our own uh, life, determining our own destiny, but secondly, we're just gonna do whatever makes us most happiest. And I've said this before in other sermons, but did you know that last year, the most popular class in Yale's history was a class on happiness, specifically psychology and the good life. Over 1,200 students took this class. That is one out of every four students at Yale. There were so many students that took this class on happiness that they had to change venues multiple times to accommodate all the students that wanted to take this class. And the fact that this many students took this class on happiness at Yale, one of the young, you know, youngest, finest minds in, in, in the world today, I think the fact that this many students took this class means at least two things. Number one, people generally speaking, people are not on quest for truth. People are on quest for happiness. We don't really care about ultimate truth, ultimate reality. What we really just wanna be is happy. 
But I think the second thing that this class shows is not only that people are on quest for happiness even more than the truth, but I think the second thing that this class shows is that we're all kind of not happy. We're all a little bit slightly miserable with our own lives, which is why there are so many people taking this class. Why is that? Because we misidentify what can actually make us happy. This is why happiness is so elusive to us, like water in our hands. We don't really know what we want half the time. We don't really know what we want half the time. Have you ever taken the, um, have I ever shared with you the idiot test, the foolish test? Tim Keller talks about it. He says that um, when you're in your 20s, you look back on your college years, no offense, wherever you are, you look back on your college years and you think, oh gosh, I was such an idiot. Like, what was I thinking? I was so naive. I was just a little young grasshopper just trying to find my way in the world. And then you hit your 30s and you look back on your 20s and you think, I can't believe I thought I was all that just because I was working and wearing better clothes and making money. What was I thinking? I can't believe I entered into that relationship. And then you hit your 40s and you finally think, oh, this is what it means to be wise. I thought I was wise when I was in my 30s, but... Not, apparently not, and then you hit your 50s and you look back. The point is we are perpetual fools. There is never a moment in your life where you are not an idiot. We really don't know what we want half the time. And Keller goes on to share a story, I think he's 70 years old now, he goes on to share a story about when he was in his 20s and he was seeing a girl who he liked very, very much. And he wanted to be engaged and marry this girl. But the problem was she slowly started losing interest to him. And so he prayed like crazy, God, please change her mind, change her posture towards me. Please let us marry one another. But at the end, uh, they, that, that relationship never materialized and they weren't together again. And he was crushed. He was devastated, he was depressed, he was angry. Why wouldn't you give me something that would make me so happy? Why, why deny this from me? And now that he looks at his 20-year-old self as a 70-year-old, in hindsight, thank God. Thank God he didn't give me what I wanted. Instead, he gave me what I needed because now he's married to his wife, Kathy. And his whole life would have gone a different trajectory had God answered his prayer. But in God's wisdom and in his goodness, he did not answer that prayer for Tim, for his 20-year-old self. I'll give you another example. Um, our church is four and a half years old, but I actually wanted to start our church about 10 years ago. That door, however, closed. And I prayed like crazy that God would open up this door. Why, why not let me do something like start a church? What's, what could be so wrong or ignoble about that? that? That's noble. However, that door closed on me. I was angry, I was depressed, I was crushed, I was upset, I wanted to be by myself. Why, why, why wouldn't you answer my prayer to start something so wonderful, to help so many people? And I look back on that time and I think, thank God. Thank God he did not answer my prayer request. And although this is a different sermon topic altogether, just because you have the right calling, it doesn't mean it's the right timing. You might have all the gifts and talents in the world, but if your character is all the way here and not caught up to here, and you're given any platform or semblance of power, do you know how many people you're gonna hurt? Thank God he didn't give me what I wanted 10 years ago. Otherwise, we wouldn't even be here today. 
Oscar Wilde, the Irish playwright and poet, once said, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. But in God's fatherly goodness to us, sometimes he doesn't for our good because he knows what is best uh, better than we do ourselves. And so when we pray your will be done instead of my will be done, what we're really saying is this. When we pray your will be done, in many ways that is a safety latch. A safety latch protects you from harming yourself, whatever instrument it might be, from harming yourself destroying and wrecking yourself. In many ways, when you pray, not my will, but your will be done, that's a safety latch. What you're saying is, if what I'm praying is not the best thing from me, don't answer it. Because you know the secret things that I do not know. And because of that, I'm going to trust you uh, with those things. A no from God is better than a yes to all of your dreams, desires, and wishes even though it might be hard to hear at the time. Now, what I have done for you just now is I have neatly packaged and bow-tied a solid, rational, logical argument for why God might not answer some of your prayers. With pithy statements like a no from God is better than a yes to all of our dreams. But even though that might satisfy your mind, I have a feeling that what I just said might not necessarily move you to pray more. And I have a feeling that what I just said, although it might satisfy your intellect, it doesn't move you to continually pray your will be done instead of my will be done. And so what will actually move us to pray more and to surrender our lives with God? Well, when you take a look at the Lord's Prayer, it doesn't just end with your will be done, but it ends, this part of the phrase, with on earth as it is in heaven. And when that phrase says on earth as it is in heaven, what that's saying is that there is basically a separation and a divide between heaven and earth. In other words, the stuff that's happening up there is not happening down here yet. The stuff that's perfect up there is not perfect here yet. But the world that we live in is imperfect. The world that we live in is broken. And as a result, when we live in this broken world, no one gets through this broken world unbroken. All of us are casualties to it. I'll give you an example. Last month, we had a staff appreciation dinner and uh, uh, my daughter wanted dessert. She wanted a cookie. And you should know that my daughter has severe allergies towards nuts and tree nuts and peanuts. And typically her father usually tastes something before he gives it to her. But for whatever reason, this time I let my guard down and I didn't. The cookie looked innocent enough, and so I just let her have it. Two nibbles later, she comes screaming back to me with lips that look as big as Angelina Jolie's, her skin breaking out in hives, and she's crying hysterically because there were nuts in that cookie. We quickly go to our apartment, and my wife Hannah calmly injects her with an EpiPen right on her right thigh. We proceed to go to urgent care and the doctor checks her and he says, everything's okay. Her lungs are open, her throat, her airways are all good. Uh, the highs had toned down, he gave her some Benadryl and we're about to leave. And right as we're about to leave, my daughter's skin flares up even more. I mean, a combination of chicken pox, poison ivy and everything that you can imagine. And he looks at us and says, you need to go to the ER right now. 
We jump on an Uber and what take, looks like is taking forever, of course, and my daughter is now gagging for air, like dry vomiting, because that is the first sign of anaphylactic shock. And at the same time, her eyes are rolling over, and I don't know if it's because she's drugged up from all the Benadryls that she took, or it's because she can't breathe. And so I have my hand on her stomach, making sure that it's going up and down. And finally, we get to the ER, and they fill her up with more steroids, and eventually all of the hives and, and welts eventually start to simmer down. And the doctors are constantly monitoring whether she is breathing or not. That was last month, super long Sunday, super long Sunday for us. Why does stuff like that happen? Traumatic stuff like that. Why does stuff like that happen? Why is my father paralyzed? Why is there cancer, Alzheimer's? Why does stuff like this happen? It's because no one gets through a broken world unbroken. All of us experience pain, suffering. You know what? All of us, without exception, are eventually going to die. And yet here is the hope of the Lord's Prayer. On earth as it is in heaven. Meaning one day this prayer will be fulfilled and these two separate places will eventually merge as one in the new heavens and the new earth. That whatever is up there will eventually belong here and the way that is done is because someone from up there came down here dragging down heaven with him to intrude heaven into this place. And although it is now fully realized yet, we do see glimmers of that. And it happens with the person of Jesus Christ whose will was to do the will of his Father. And what was the will of his father? Not to leave us or abandon us or forsake us, but the will of the father is to reverse the curse of sin. That one day everything broken in this life will be fixed and restored. That was why he came. And when you take a look at Jesus' life, a few hours before he is arrested and crucified, he's in this garden garden in Gethsemane and as he is praying he prays father take this cup away from me yet not my will but yours be done now what is this cup that he's talking about in ancient days a cup was a sign of execution this is actually how Socrates died he drank a poison chalice and when Jesus says, Father, take this cup away from me, what he is saying is, take this poison of your wrath away from me, yet not as I will, but your will be done. In other words, if there's another way of saving your people other than drinking this whole thing, please let me know because I'm all ears. Because this is not going to make me happy, but I am relinquishing control over my life to you because I trust you. And you know what he heard back? Nothing. That prayer, not answered. And thank God it wasn't answered. Because that prayer wasn't answered, 
Jesus Christ drank the poison of God's wrath that we deserve for our sins so that we would never have to taste a drop of it. His will, when he was praying, was eventually bent toward the will of God. You know why you should pray? Because when you pray, typically what we do is we try to bend God's will to our life. Give me what I want. But when you pray in the right ways, what inevitably ends up happening, if you have a teachable and open heart, your will is actually being bent towards His. And if He loved you enough to send His only Son to save you and to restore you and to fix everything that is broken, why in the world would you live your life with the attitude of mine will be done? Why wouldn't you gladly surrender and say, if you've been this good to me so far, why wouldn't I pray your will be done and not my will uh, be done? Our culture says do whatever you desire, whatever you wish, and fulfill your desires. But in Christianity, sometimes you need to crucify your desires, your dreams, and your wishes because you don't really know what you want. Just because you desire something, it doesn't mean it's the most desirable thing for you. But we have a Heavenly Father that knows what is best for us, which is why when we pray and we live, we should say whatever you will, whenever you will, however you will, I'm gonna trust you. Even if I don't like it right now, I trust you that you know what is best for me. An early church father, Ignatius, said that sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. It is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. And until we believe in this, until we are convinced of this otherwise, we will take control over the driver's seat of our own life. But in this prayer, what this prayer is saying is relinquish control. Take your hands off the driver's driving wheel, the steering wheel, and allow God to be put in the driver's seat and to direct you in the path that he has for you. I do wanna read final two quotes by way of application on the first page of your bulletin. And maybe this is something that you can say uh, to yourself as well from Sam Albury and Jonathan Edwards. Albury says, this is my prayer for 2019. Lord, please give me what I need, not what I want. And please help me to want what it is I need. And Edwards goes on to say, our bad things will turn out for good. Our good things can never be taken away from us. The best is yet to come. I'm gonna pray with a prayer from Francis Schaeffer and I know that typically when we close our eyes in prayer we zone out. And so I'm gonna ask you for the next 15 seconds to try and pay attention as best as you can. Uh, as we close this time with a prayer from Francis Schaeffer. So please pray with me. Lord, help us to be able to say, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. For we freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. In Jesus' name I pray.